Thanks, Dan. Well, clearly I am eager to preach uh, and almost compromise the announcements, but I'm glad that uh, we figured that out. Some learning curve here as Dave is gone. Um, so if some of you are wondering, what am I doing here? How did I, uh, clearly not from around these parts, get invited to come spend four whole weeks with you? Uh, the story goes about five years back. My wife and I were visiting her family. My wife's from the area. Uh, I'm from the States. And as we were visiting, we were just looking for new churches in the area. We're looking to explore a Sunday at a different church than the one she'd grown up in. And we found you guys. And so we showed up a morning when tables were set. I think you were about to eat a meal. It was a wonderful introduction to Redeemer. You guys have been on our hearts ever since. But at the time, we were working at a community called The Practice back at Willow Creek Community Church outside of Chicago. And it just so happened that David Armstrong had been listening to our podcast. In fact, I think my wife had just taught. And uh, you have to understand, every American you talk to thinks that Ireland is magical. If I were to tell someone back in America, I'm preaching in Ireland this Sunday, they'd say, wow, you must, it's so magical what you're doing over there in Ireland. Similarly here, I have learned, everyone here thinks if you're from America and you're on a podcast, then you must be very important. And so Dave, I think, was a little starstruck, thought it was amazing that he was meeting my wife, was meeting me, uh, and thankfully we've just struck up a friendship ever since. So my wife and I moved back about a year and a half ago. Uh, we're living up in Dundonald with her family, and we've got two little kids. Hopefully, you'll get to meet them next week. But I'm, I'm just thrilled to be here with you, to take you on a journey, and in some ways, to connect you to this conversation that was part of what started our relationship with Dave Armstrong, part of what drew us to come connect with you in the first place, and that's a conversation around the practices of Jesus. But you'll notice in the title... We mentioned this term, disenchantment. I want to begin to introduce this series, to introduce the journey we'll go on these next four weeks by leaning in to what is a little bit uncomfortable. I don't know that we often talk about this from the front. Preachers don't often go into this from the pulpit. But I want to talk about this term that seems to be a buzzword right now that is disenchantment. So I will do the classic technique. Uh, if you're confused and need to get somewhere to go to get a conversation started. I want to start with a few definitions. I find these definitions, though, oddly resonant and insightful. If you've been connecting to a sense of disenchantment yourself, if you've been connected to friends who are maybe growing more and more disenchanted, maybe it's a COVID disenchantment, maybe it's a Christianity disenchantment. Uh, the first definition comes from the Oxford English Dictionary. They note that disenchantment is to be disappointed by someone or something previously respected or admired. They call this disillusionment or disenchantment. Second definition comes from the Cambridge Dictionary. They note that disenchantment is when you are no longer believing in the value of something, especially after having learned of the faults that it has. Finally, thirdly, Merriam-Webster just goes straight for the Emotions, they say disenchantment is to no longer be happy, pleased, or satisfied. <laughs> that one cuts a little bit deep. You're just not happy anymore if you're disenchanted. There's a sense of depression. There's a cloud that's lingering over you. Uh, most contexts in Christian circles where disenchantment comes up is this sense with Christianity where you once, at one point earlier, 
maybe in your life, maybe as a child, maybe you were part of a, a youth group or you had a really great church in university that you were connecting to and flourishing, or maybe you came to the faith in your 20s or 30s, but now, as time has gone on, disenchantment is the sense in which there's this yearning and nostalgia that that faith you once knew and loved no longer seems present to you. In fact, for very important reasons, you now no longer sense as connected to it. Something feels off to you, or maybe it no longer seems plausible at all. For me, in my life, my journey with disenchantment began all the way back at the age of 19. So I grew up in a Christian home. I'm sure many of you here I grew up in Christian homes. My father was actually a minister, so I was minister's son in a Christian home, and I chose uh, to go to university to study at a Christian university for Christian ministry. So I was all in, if you will, with my chips that I was heading towards this path of Christianity. And yet, at the age of 19, I'm sure many of you here will resonate with this, a whole host of problems seemed to be pressing in on my life. There were intellectual questions that I was suddenly wrestling with as I was thrown deep into all of these vast and important conversations that were going on, many of which were critical of Christianity. There, were, there was a social communal gap where all of my friendships that had previously given me this strong sense of security, I knew who I was in my community, in my church, in my family, they were all gone as I had left for university to go study elsewhere. And then finally, personally, there was just a sense that a lot of things were going wrong in my life at 19. There were family problems that were beginning to surface that would consume the next three or four years uh, and would lead to a lot of devastation and collapse. And yet for me, none of that was really present to my mind. Instead, all I could tell was that on one very dark night, I went for this walk where I was going to go encounter God. I, I was committed. I was going to go on a walk uh, out by Lake Michigan. I was studying in Chicago at the time. And as I was going on this walk, I was convinced God was going to appear and speak to me in whatever way that meant, whether it was that still small voice or a dramatic encounter or a stirring of the heart. And instead, on this long, cold night, I found silence. And for the first time in my life, I sensed a wavering of my faith. I sensed something may not be right here. What if this faith that I had held so dear collapsed? I think there's a very real sense right now that I'm sure if I were to sit down and talk to many of you, uh, I know from my own experience this last year has pressed a lot of disenchantment on all of us. I think you have to be feeling this cloud of disenchantment. There's, there's these political pressures. Where we're all sort of disenchanted politically. There's these social pressures where all of us have lost the steady rhythms of life, the steady connections to friend. And then in Christianity as a whole, uh, particularly among my friends, I, I've experienced more deconversions this last year of people who are saying, I just can't stick it with Christianity anymore than I've seen the last 10 years combined. Disenchantment is very present to our doorsteps. So my question this morning for you, the question to set up this series and the hope that I want to turn with you towards is the question, why are we so disenchanted right now? 
And where can we go? Where could, where could I go at 19 after this difficult encounter, this dark night of the soul? Where do we turn when we are wrestling with our own disenchantment? So to, to dive in, to talk about that, I want to give you three reasons. Three reasons that I hope can just bring clarity. Maybe bring a little bit of uh, that gasp of relief, of recognition, uh, that this is maybe what has been going on. So the first reason I think there's so much disenchantment around us right now is this insight called plausibility structures. Have you ever heard of this? Plausibility structures. Uh, this was sort of built by a sociologist named Peter Berger, who wrote a book in the 1960s called The Social Construction of Reality. Here's the pivotal insight that I think is helpful to begin with. We assume, each of us, uh, all of us do this, there's nothing uh, shameful about it, but all of us assume that we come up with our own values and belief systems. We are the masters of our own beliefs. We're the masters of our own faith. If you were to be asked, why is it that you believe politically what you believe or socially what you believe or religiously what you believe, you would probably say, well, I, I've, I've thought about this deeply. I, I've come to my own conclusions. I am uh, the one who has derived these values and beliefs. Yet what Peter Berger notes in his sociology is that for most of us, our beliefs are not simply something we come up with on the abstract, distant, remote planet of our own reason, but instead, beliefs and values are shared. They actually become plausible because the communities around us create containers in which we say, that seems to make sense to me, and so I can believe it. One uh, just practical on the ground example that I can offer you is the very important decision, uh, I could take an informal poll, but I won't, around Coke original flavor and Coke Zero. I'm sure you've had some of these conversations with your friends uh, in my family circle, my wife's family that we're very close to. The debate is rigorous. Uh, I can't, coming from my background, uh, just to be honest with you, if I could share openly, uh, Coke original was my preference. I really liked Coke original, Coke original tasted good, but there, of course, is a dilemma with original Coke. It's got a lot of sugar, it's got a lot of calories. You have to take this burden on when you drink it. And so when we arrived, my family all began with a lot of simultaneous pressure, just really praising the values of Coke Zero. The endless possibilities that a soft drink could have no calories and yet taste almost identical to original Coke. And so as they begin describing it, first it was words, right, conversations. They would hold it aloft, and even as uh, they would do so, I'd think to myself, I'll never, never be converted. I would never change. I'd never betray Coke original where I came from. And yet, the more it was stocked in the house, uh, the more it was just around me, sort of in the air I breathe, uh, as dinners would go on and as I would find myself looking for an option, what sort of soft drink do I pick up? Inevitably, I'm sad to tell you that about nine months ago, I converted uh, to Coke Zero. My point, of course, in bringing up original Coke and Coke Zero is not that that decision matters all that much, but it highlights Peter Berger's point that plausibility is key to whether or not we lean into values and beliefs. In fact, if you're totally honest with yourself, any belief you truly cherish if you go back and trace it, you will likely see around yourself a community of practice 
that made that belief plausible. And just as equally, if you leave a belief behind, you probably can go back and see a community of practice that failed you. Community of practice that in their own failure to live up to their beliefs, values, or ideologies started to make it increasingly implausible to remain in what you previously held dear. There's uh, this quote by C.S. Lewis, who I love C.S. Lewis, um, but he, he really gets plausibility structures as he himself reflects on his own journey. He famously was an atheist all the way up to the age of 30 and then had a radical conversion to Christianity. But as C.S. Lewis reflects on it, he says, it is your senses and your imagination that are going to attack belief. Here, as in the New Testament, the conflict is not between faith and reason, but actually between faith and sight. Our faith in Christ wavers not so much when real arguments come against it as when it looks improbable. Catch that? When the world takes on the desolate look, which really tells us more about the state of our passions and even our digestion than about reality. Lewis is writing this in a letter after the Second World War, and his point, I think, has an equal weight as we wrestle with disenchantment today. It is not so much that those beliefs you used to hold have been attacked by reason, but actually the beliefs you used to held have seemed increasingly implausible because of a failure of practice. Practices broke down and you now no longer are compelled, you no longer find value in those beliefs you once held dear. I think this is a first step to recognizing disenchantment. The second reason why I think disenchantment is so pressing to so many of us is celebrity burnout. Uh, to be totally honest with you, we have experienced a lot of disappointment when it comes to our Christian celebrities the past couple of years. Uh, I, as you uh, perhaps could tell that some of you are very connected to Christian celebrities. Some of you are probably less connected, uh, but I got to watch uh, up close and personal at Willow Creek, which was famously this very large, massive church in America, as uh, for about six months, the community just was hit with accusation after accusation against its head senior pastor, Bill Hybels, uh, accusing him of sexually inappropriate relationships. And as, as it just kept hitting, you just saw the community crumbling. It just, it was like this sledgehammer that kept coming. Uh, equally this last year, Rabbi Zacharias, who could arguably be one of the most prominent uh, apologists, defenders of the Christian faith, has come to light after his death that there was just this string of cover-ups cover and abuse in his background. And as I'm sure many of you have been uh, listening to Christianity Today has been chronicling the rise and fall of Mars Hill, the sense in which a celebrity, a charismatic figure really drew us in, started to uh, lift up all these possibilities. I know uh, even as Dave has shared, uh, that Mark Driscoll, the pastor of Mars Hill, was literally here connected to Redeemer Central at one point early in your story, and yet now, now he's fallen, all of these issues of pride and egotism and anger and bullying caused his ministry to collapse. And as each of us watch these trajectories, as we watch over and over and over again our celebrities fail us, we just start to grow weary. We start to feel burned out. Now, I'm encouraged this morning as we talk about celebrity burnout, as we stare at celebrity burnout, uh, there's actually a, a passage that I've been reflecting on a lot as I've been listening to 
uh, Christianity Today especially talk about the rise and fall of Mars Hill, uh, I'm struck that for all of the pressing urgency of celebrity burnout, we are not unique in our tendency and temptation to worship celebrities, to find ourselves hoping that maybe, just maybe this new leader, this new pastor, this new figure, this new author could show us a new way out of our own wilderness. Instead, Paul tells us that even from the very beginning at the church in Corinth, there's this quarrel taking place. Uh, I love this. Paul's going to say, my brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Stephus. Still another, I follow Christ. Paul then continues by saying, is Christ divided? And this question gets even closer to where Paul is driving. He'll say, was Paul crucified for you? Is your celebrity the one that you built your faith upon? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No, I thank God that I did not baptize any of you. And he adds, clearly reflecting on his own experience, maybe Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say, you were baptized in my name. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this passage, but it's interesting as we're talking about disenchantment and the practices of Jesus. I just want to make the note that the disenchantment can come, can arise when we place our faith on a figure instead of centering our faith on the one who came to save us. And as Paul is trying to address this, even in the first century, Paul's going to note first who is it that you were called to follow in the first place? You weren't called to follow them. I know how powerful a voice, a figure, an imagination that person offered. Yet you were called to follow Christ. Christ is the one to center, to focus your faith upon. And interestingly, Paul is going to connect faith and focus in Christ to practices themselves, specifically here to the practice of baptism. It's like Paul's trying to tell them, listen, you're a little wobbly right now. Things are, things are wavering. There's a lot of pressure. What you need to come back to is Christ, but one of the ways you can get back to him is to remember your baptism, to remember these practices that help remind you it's not about the teachers and the preachers and the authors and the podcasters. It's about the founder of your faith who offers you practices to return and refocus on him. Let me keep going with my third reason. Third reason why I think we're really struggling with disenchantment is this fancy sounding term that I wanna break down for you called expressive individualism. Perhaps some of you have stumbled across this. Expressive individualism came about from another sociologist, a guy by the name of Robert Bella, who did this massive study in the 1980s of religion across America. He interviewed hundreds of people, uh, got into these deep, in-depth character, uh, characterizations of who people were, how they were making faith and value decisions, what they believed. And his realization that he tried to map was that a shift had taken place in America that most people would say has taken place across the Western world, definitely was taking place here in the UK, in Northern Ireland, and that shift was that before, we used to figure out who we were based on the roles our communities handed to us. So quite simply, my grandfather on my father's side was a plumber. 
uh, according to the previous system of sort of moral communal roles, my father would have become a plumber because his father was a plumber. And then I, as I was growing up, would have been told, you're going to be a plumber. And it would have been as simple as that. I could have asked, well, could I be anything else? Uh, and the answer quite simply would have been no. <laughs> no, you can't. Uh, your father was a plumber. Your grandfather was a plumber. What our community needs is another plumber. However, this shift that's been taking place that all of us have benefited from, so I'm not saying this is all bad or all terrible, has been a shift that Robert Bella calls expressive individualism. Rather than looking to our communities and to the roles that our society handed down to us, we each have been increasingly encouraged to look inside ourselves and in searching sort of our inner sense of who we are, what, what we like, what we've experienced, what we value, each of us then are called to express that unique individual self to the world. Uh, Robert Bella's quote is that expressive individualism holds that each person has a unique core of feeling and intuition that should unfold or be expressed if individuality or the self is to be realized. So Charles Taylor, who's another philosopher, is going to call this the age of authenticity. We now all live in the age of authenticity where you are given this great task. You must find out who you are. Only you can tell us who you are, and when you discover it, you can be the one to share and express that authentic self with the world. There's a lot of really great and wonderful things that can come out of this. One that I would note that's a high currency today in our world is that we all really value and lean in when we hear stories of pain, right? When I look across social media, if there's any pain, and Afghanistan is such a great example, when we see tragedy unfolding, our age of authenticity wants to lean in because we realize, oh, there, there's an, ex an experience of the self taking place here that we value. We know what it's like to feel pain, and so we resonate, we connect when other people are expressing their pain. Uh, if you express your pain online, it's likely that you'll get more likes, more attention, more connectivity to this sort of social online community. Yet, Charles Taylor notes that if we live in the age of authenticity, the challenge for each of us is that that burden to express ourselves, the task that is looking inside and coming up with this brand new unique self that you offer to the world, that burden has led to what he also notes is now the age of anxiety. If we live in the age of authenticity, the struggle to be authentic for many of us, for many of us has caused deep an unyielding anxiety. And so there's this sense, as we try to look within ourselves to figure out who we are, that the pressure, the fear, the possibility that your self, as you try to express it, might actually be rejected, might be uh, challenged or denied, causes a deep anxiety within us. So I would note, as I look out at social media, as I have dwelt in the social media sphere with all of you this past year, that if pain has a high currency on social media, then outrage is also our response to the fear or the anxiety that who we are might be rejected. So online, I feel like the two main ways to really connect, to get a lot of 
attention is, is if you share your pain or if you share your outrage. Someone else is being ignored. Someone else's self is being rejected. And the point is that there's this, this fear, this possibility that if they're rejected, well, then I too might be rejected. Uh, one of the great prophets, and I go here somewhat tongue-in-cheek, somewhat humorously, although I think there's a real wisdom that she has to share, uh, in our current age of expressive individualism is, in fact, Taylor Swift. So I've already brought up one controversial thing. Are you original Coke or are you Coke Zero? Here's my second controversial contribution. Uh, I may not be back next week. I recognize that. Uh, I'm going to bring up Taylor Swift. Now, my wife and I are yet again divided. My wife uh, really enjoys, admires, and respects Taylor Swift. I am not as fond of her music. That's all right. But I bring up Taylor Swift because, uh, because of my wife's interest. Some friends were over. Uh, we knew she had done this Netflix special. That was her tour. And so we put it on one night. And it really struck me. Taylor Swift had this profoundly insightful moment, which was really the emotional center of her tour, where she slowed things down, the music began to vamp. And Taylor Swift has this quote that I've got up on the screen for you to read as well. She says, if I were to guess, the one thing that everyone has in common, it's the experience of something real. And here I would insert in parentheses, something authentic, right? That's what we're looking for in life. And the thing that scares us the most in life are the things we think that threaten the prospect of finding something real. For example, Having a bad reputation in our mind can get in the way of finding real friendship, real love, real acceptance. I'm struck. Her tour was called the Reputation Tour, right? This is expressive individualism manifesting and working itself out. But here's where her quote ends. She says, I think that's why all of us are afraid of having a bad reputation because we're so scared of having something fake like gossip or a rumor or a name you've been called getting in the way of having something real. So when it comes down to that anxiety, it's all really delicate. And then she launches into her big track, Delicate, whose chorus quite literally says, is it cool that I said all that? Is it chill that you're in my head? Because I know that it's delicate. I, I realize I just quoted Taylor Swift in a Sunday sermon. Uh, and yet I think, I think Taylor Swift puts her finger on the challenge, the problem, the reason why for so many of us, disenchantment is not some looming threat way out there, a sort of unimaginable reality where our faith is never going to waver. But instead, disenchantment is right up close. It's, it's right here. It's pressing in on us. It's this pressure between authenticity and our anxiety that causes each of ourselves, each of our individual cores to feel so fragile and delicate. So where do we turn? If I've attempted to give some clarity on why, why it feels like disenchantment is so pressing. Well, this morning, I, I wanted to invite you in to offer the vision and invitation that really started to re- focus my trajectory, my Christian faith, about 10 years ago, and that I've just been walking out ever since, have been exploring, have been trying to understand, have been trying to lean into, and that we're going to keep unpacking these next couple of weeks. The invitation is that of Jesus, and it quite simply 
is the invitation you have heard before, but that I want to return you to. It's Jesus' invitation to come and follow me. I'm struck that as you sit with this phrase, follow me, I was doing some background digging on it this past week. 13 times across the Gospels, Jesus is going to use this phrase. And it makes me think, uh, as you check with historical commentators on this, this in all likelihood was something Jesus said to people. I mean, this is, this is actually verbatim encounters that Jesus had as he met with people from all different social stratuses across Israel, the Roman Empire. And what I'm struck with, as you go back and stare closer at these encounters, the invitation to come follow me often was an invitation given to disenchanted people. So the first one uh, that we can talk about in Matthew 4, verse 19 Jesus approaches this rogue band of fishermen. I'm sure you've heard this preached before. Fishermen were not the stars of society. Instead, fishermen were sort of the working class, the blue collar, the uneducated, the rough and tumble, ready to go, often despised even among the Jewish people. And yet Jesus comes to them, sort of looked down and misunderstood in society, and he makes this invitation, come Follow me, Jesus says, and I will send you out to fish for people. Uh, the next instance of follow me we could talk about is Luke 5, 27. Uh, Jesus is going to approach a tax collector. Now, again, if, if fishermen are over here, if they're rough and tumble, uneducated, then the despised and hated of society were the tax collectors. The tax collectors were often Jewish people who had, in a way, betrayed their own ethnicity, their own people, by working instead for the Roman occupation to extract taxes, and all accounts suggest tax collectors were greedy, they were excessively wealthy, they were built on a system of corruption, and they too were deeply despised, and yet Jesus approaches one by the name of Levi, sitting at his tax booth, and he's just going to say simply to him, follow me. Third encounter comes from Luke 18, 22. You've heard this encounter before. We're told this very pious, deeply religious man who also happened to be extremely wealthy approaches Jesus and questions him on the law. When Jesus tells him, listen, love the Lord your God, follow his commandments, the young man says, all of this I have done. And Jesus, for whatever reason, not cynically, Jesus takes him at his words and says, okay, well, then Jesus says, there's one thing left Sell everything that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. As we know, this young man walks away sad because he had great wealth. And yet, I'm just struck as you're painting this canvas. Jesus does not qualify the invitation based on your theological or political background. Jesus doesn't qualify it based on your wealth or your social class or your status. Instead, repeatedly over and over again, if someone is looking to find a way out of the disenchantment they have with their society, with their place in society, Jesus offers this profound invitation, come, follow me. Uh, the next passage, Jesus is going to be speaking to his disciples uh, in a moment of discouragement, and he gives them a heavy cost to this invitation, but he says, whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And then finally, just uh, because I'm particularly moved by this passage, in John 21, 19, I'm struck 
that Jesus has this interaction with Peter after Peter's denials, after Peter has turned his back on his Lord and Savior. I don't think we often think of Peter's denials as a radical deconversion, but there was certainly a wavering. There was certainly a disenchantment, and yet I love here that Jesus repeating the same invitation, even for those who have followed, who have faltered, who have stopped, who have turned, Jesus comes back and says to him once more, Peter, follow me. I'm struck that follow me, though you have perhaps heard it before, is often, is often not really reflected upon richly. To follow Jesus involves more than just belief or assent or uh, acknowledging, recognizing the validity of his truth claims, or even uh, celebrating the vision of the kingdom that Jesus has presented. No, to follow Jesus is first embodied. It requires us to actually get up, to use our bodies, to involve ourselves. Second, it is uh, participating in Jesus's life. So you think about these disciples in order to follow Jesus. What Jesus is really beckoning them to do is to come watch how he practices, watch how he lives, watch the rhythms of how Jesus gets up in the morning and how he goes to sleep. Pay attention to how Jesus chooses to interact with people, how Jesus structures his day. Pay attention to how Jesus would sit around with his friends and eat a meal. And yet finally, this invitation to follow me is imitating the practices that Jesus offers. I'm struck that the early church was not called Christians right away, but instead were called followers of the way, right? The sense in which Jesus is demonstrating, Jesus had literally witnessed and involved in his being a set of practices that reflected the kingdom. And Jesus' invitation is to put your faith in him, not just by believing in him, but by following him in the practices that he modeled. So as I come back to my story, uh, truth is, I, at the age of 19, though I felt the deep sense of wavering, what I realized was that I needed to go deeper if my faith was going to survive. And yet in attempting to go deeper, what I quickly began to realize is that there wasn't a set of theological convictions that I was going to be able to hold on to. There wasn't even a uh, sense of tradition or a organization or a job that was going to give me stability. Rather, I would need to fix my eyes on Jesus and in fixing on him to come back to the practices that Jesus offered, to come back to the way of Jesus that often first and foremost begins around this table which we're about to share together. So these next couple weeks, I want to offer to you a vision of what it looks like in three concrete practices to step more deeply into these practices. I believe from my own experience that these practices can offer to you the stability for your faith that you will need in this age of disenchantment. When plausibility structures start to fall around you, it will be a community of practice, this church even, practicing the way of Jesus that will make it plausible once more to follow Jesus. As celebrities are crashing around you, it will be the practices of Jesus which help you realize it wasn't about 
the teacher in the first place. It was always about Jesus, and it was even about the practices Jesus was trying to offer. And finally, when it comes to you trying to figure out who you are, this desperate pressure, this delicate sense of being caught between authenticity and anxiety, isn't it a gift to know that Jesus not only wants to offer you that sense of self, that Jesus wants to be able to tell you who you are, but that Jesus also offers you practices, practices to remind, to reassure, to return in a community of faith back to the God who does know who you are. So as I close in prayer this morning, I wonder where you are at with disenchantment. I I wonder if there's a couple of key relationships in your life that perhaps have burned out this last year. I wonder on the other side of COVID, how exhausted and frustrated you're feeling. And yet I wonder, friends, if this series, these next couple weeks, might be an invitation for you to follow Jesus again, to begin picking up some of these practices, to step back onto the way. It doesn't matter where you've been this last year. It doesn't matter where you have journeyed in your disenchantment. Jesus still comes to you and he beckons you. Come, follow me. Lord, we turn now to your table. And in turning to your table, Lord, we we thank you for the gift that you have offered, not just in the invitation to follow you, but in the way you have charted for us. Lord, I pray particularly for the stories here in this room right now uh, and where the pressures of disenchantment have come, uh, what this last year has held, what questions or doubts have been wrestled with, are being wrestled with, what friendships, Lord, have suffered. And I pray even now, as we come back to your word, as we come back to you, Lord, I pray that we would be able to hear this invitation afresh. Come, follow me. Thank you, Lord, for this table, and I pray now we would continue in our time of worship. Amen. Brilliant. Thanks, John. Um, Would you stand with me as we come to the table?